Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. On Think Again, we have unpredictable conversations about big ideas with some of the most creative thinkers on the planet. They're sparked by my own curious questions and by surprise ideas from Big Think's archives. What do Rachel Carson, Frederick Douglass, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Ernest Shackleton, and Abraham Lincoln have in common, aside from being historical figures you've probably heard of? That's the question my guest today tries to answer in her new book, Forged in Crisis. At a time when trustworthy leadership seems in short supply, it examines what real leadership is and how it comes about. I'm very happy to welcome Harvard historian Nancy Kane to the show. Welcome, Nancy. Thank you, Jason. It's a pleasure to be here. I have to say that you, your book won me over immediately because the definition or the sort of explanation of leadership that you quoted right in the beginning was by one of my absolute favorite thinkers, um, David Foster Wallace. Can we talk a little bit about that? Like what, how do you even begin to sort of answer that question of what real leadership is or, or is does the adjective does real even apply you know i think real applies just fine i mean we're yeah. looking we're, we're suffering from a, a a really terrifying and disillusioning absence of real leadership at least on the national at the, in the highest levels of national power right now um but i think i think david foster wallace's definition which he wrote or he, he first put down on paper and i don't know that he used it again but he first he coined it in in an article he wrote for Rolling Stone about the very first John McCain presidential campaign. He right. was he was covering the campaign for Rolling Stone, and the definition is this. And it just it just when I read it, it just struck me as so right. And that was many many years ago. And I've used it with all kinds of leaders in, from different walks of life and found the same kind of traction. So the definition is you'll remember is effective leaders, courageous leaders, real leaders is what he uses, are individuals who help us overcome the limitations of our own weaknesses and selfishness and laziness and fears and get us to do harder, better things than we can get ourselves to do on our own. Right. And I just, I read that and I was like, wow, that really describes, you know, influential, motivating teachers we've had. It describes chemo nurses I knew when I was fighting cancer. It describes great presidents. It describes, you know, firefighters rushing into burning buildings or, nat or, or you know, the, nine, the, the Twin Towers in 9-11. It just describes so much of what courageous leadership is all about that once I discovered that and floated it with all kinds of different people uh, in positions of leadership, I realized that's, that's the definition I like the best because it implies that leaders are people who help us get better, stronger, more luminous. And I, I, do, I do like that about your book, the fact that you present the stories and episodes from the lives of these five figures. You, you, know, you talk about how their leadership emerged uh, primarily in times of crisis, but also through their early lives. But you're not, you know, and you try to draw lessons from them, but you're not, this is obviously not a like rigidly prescriptive book, do these five things and you will be a great leader. Absolutely know. not. So, yeah, there are, you know, there are a number of, you know, many fine books on leadership bookshelves across the country that are prescriptive. Right. You know, Seven Habits of Highly Organized People. Right. right. You know, Good to Great, um, Built to Last. I mean, there's, and there's many, many more of them, you know, Who Stole My Cheese. I mean, there are, again, a plethora of very good books like that. But that's not how historians work. 
we're not prescriptive. We're inductive right. beavers, right? We're, sure. we're detectives. We, 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 we find an interesting clue, and then we follow it to the next one, and then we piece the clues together, and the story emerges, not deductively, but inductively from the clues adding up to a, the pieces of the puzzle adding up to a picture. What a historian like myself does, who works in a pragmatic, just-in-time institution like the Harvard Business School, is all I, I make is an offering. Right. And I hope that people find a way to get something, do something better and harder with it, to use Wallace's definition. Right, right. Well, and, and, and I, I wonder whether, I mean, and no, this is no diss to those wonderful books that you mentioned before, but, I, but it seems to me that real life, actually, that there is actually not only a, a cultural disconnect, but maybe a, like, a kind of fundamental disconnect between those two ways of working on this issue in the sense that real life, at least as it's exemplified by these five people that you write about, is messy and complex. I mean, although there are commonalities in how they dealt with crisis and how their leadership emerged and the forms that it took, it's not necessarily the case that you can just kind of make a list of how to do this. You God, know? God bless you for saying that, Jason. I, I, I often begin, like, I've, I've written I've used this material in classrooms for years. So part of the way I learned what seemed relevant was to conduct these academic focus groups of students and executives and say, here's a case on Abraham Lincoln as president. What do you make of him as a leader? So I've learned a huge amount. I owe a huge debt of gratitude to the people I've worked with, students and executives, over the years on this. But one of the first things I say when I present them is just what you just said. I said, let me make one thing very clear. Effective leadership is messy. It's messy and it's about failure as much as it's success. In fact, you could indeed argue that every one of the five people in this book fails more than they succeed. And we, right. we, we want to get away from the idea that there are seven things we can do and all will be well, because that's not helping us. This question of resilience, right, comes up in the book. Like all of these leaders are resilient in the sense that they deal with terrible adversity. In some ways, adversity shapes them into who they are yeah. in a lot of ways, yeah. but they also, you know, there are times, as you say, where they're on the brink of giving up. And when we think of resilience, we think, okay, they persevered and they went through. And yes, they persevered quite a lot. Mm -hmm. But I mean, what exactly is perseverance besides, and resilience, mm -hmm. that is to say, besides just not jumping off a bridge? I mean, like for a lot of these folks? Well, because Lincoln almost. Almost did. did a bunch of times. A bunch you of know. times, yeah, right. Yeah. And, and, you know, Shackleton came close to just giving up. And, Carson wanted to give up, but she fought breast cancer and tried to write this world-changing book, which indeed it was. Yeah, um, I so, mean, yeah. So, so I mean, resilience is, a, I think your question is, is, is an insightful one. One of the interesting things about this book is that sometimes resilience is just, is getting to the canyon, the edge of the canyon, when you wanna just say, I'm done. And by the way, if the leader gives up in a moment of despair or doubt or darkness or just too many trees falling in his or her right. path, the whole game is up. Right. Everything, there are lots of moments when if the leader caves, the whole damn enchilada is over. And I should interrupt and say that sometimes these, a lot of times, especially for these very public leaders like Lincoln and Shackleton, yeah. where people are depending on them for their very lives, these doubts and anguish and whatnot, they happen privately. They They're happen not, privately because they don't they know they yeah. can't afford to display them publicly yeah, yeah. without ruining, sabotaging their mission. Right. So there's a whole important lesson in the book interlaced through all these that how leaders show up in terms of what they display, what they allowed, what do they disgorge emotionally and what they don't, mm. how they show up in service to their mission, 
is a really important aspect of effective leadership, really important tool. But, but one of the aspects of resilience that's interesting is sometimes it's something that happens just by a hair's breadth. So Lincoln is ready to like say, I can't do it. We, I, I, I'm done. He threatens on a couple of occasions to kill himself. Right. You realize that resilience in that moment is, Lincoln's at the edge. He's at the edge of the chasm. His toes are hanging over the edge. And then he says, he takes one tiny baby step backwards from the edge of the cliff, just one. And that in itself is an act of resilience. Mm. And then he takes another, right? And by the end of the evening, by the time dawn comes, he's somehow ready to drink some coffee and begin another day. Right. And that is resilience as much as, you know, Shackleton shaking his fist at the, at the Arctic, Antarctic sky and saying, you know, with God as my witness, I'm gonna get these 27 men home. So resilience comes in different forms and sometimes it is defined just like the difference between success and failure by a very thin line. Right. That's, that's the first thing. Second thing, resilience, and you know, I'm not the first person to say this, uh, Cheryl Sandberg and Adam Grant have written this very interesting okay. book, Plan B, right? That, that talks about the resilience muscle, and they're not the first person to say it either, but they've done a great job, I think, making people aware that resilience is something that's accretive, right? We, we have some, we develop more each time we take a small step away from the cliff or, or toward the mission or into our own fear, Right. We develop it, and then the next time we have to do that, the next time we get to despair and doubt and giving up, we actually can access the last time we were there and go, wait a minute, I got through that. Right. And it's a little easier, and the muscle's a little stronger. And the great thing, at least that I took away personally, as someone who wrote the book, partly because I was in such a personal, a series of personal crises, that was, that was my genesis, my interest okay. in the idea of crises, was just all, my husband left me, my father died suddenly, I developed cancer with no risk factors. Less than three years later, I got a more dangerous version of cancer back again. I mean, and and you don't, yeah, you don't actually go into that at all in the book. I'm this. No, is, no, I mean, but that's but time, in the yeah. midst of that, I reached. Yeah. I was, uh, yeah. I'm sure I reached for chocolate, but I also <laughs> reached. I also reached for Lincoln, and I started. I didn't know anything. I didn't know. I knew very little about Lincoln. I was not trained as an American historian, but as a European historian, okay. and I reached for his writings, and I started at the end of his presidency, before he was killed, and I read backwards through his letters, his, his, you know, the pieces he wrote for newspapers, his speeches, his executive orders, and I came to real, and I was reading a biography on the side as I'm getting deeper and deeper into this fascinating, complex, calculating, humorous, ultimately very, very, very honorable person who made himself into a great leader. I'm realizing, Nancy, you think you have problems. I mean, Abraham Lincoln had huge personal issues to deal with, huge personal adversity and, and, and at times crisis while he was president, and he's struggling to keep the union together in the midst of this you know, jaw-dropping bloodshed. So one of the wonderful things that I learned personally in writing, and recon writing these stories and reconstructing them was that we can all find our resilience muscles. One of the things that I'm thinking about while you're talking, you know, is about, you know, as we were saying, some of these leaders, particularly in very difficult situations where everyone was depending on them for a sense of hope and purpose, purpose and yeah. so on, they have to front a lot. Like even when they're, you know, even when they're in the midst of despair, they're having to, you know, and like, I wonder whether that, I, I don't know, whether that creates a sort of paradox for people historically where like, if we want to lead, if we want to be resilient in our lives, right, we need to understand that it involves these kinds of ups and downs. Yeah. But all of those people that we are looking up to historically, or many of them, mm -hmm. 
pretended that they were perfect, or a lot of them. You well, know, I don't like, think they pretended. Or at least showed so, this front of invulnerability. You well, know? I'm not even sure I would say invulnerability. There are moments of public vulnerability in each of these stories. So you think about okay. some of Lincoln's speeches or his letters, right, where he's, he'll say, I have known great grief. He writes mm -hmm. it's a wonderful letter quoted in the book that he sends in late 1862 to a, to a girl in Illinois whose father's been killed. And Lincoln writes this letter to this 12-year-old saying, you know, grief takes us unawares and that is hardest for the young because they don't expect it. But okay. if you have lived as long as I have, you have come to expect it. And so he's, he's exposing himself, but it's a carefully thought out, calculated, calculated yeah. thing. Um, so they, I don't think it's that they pretend to be invulnerable. They, they, what they don't do, they don't reveal their own inner sense of periodic or perhaps at, at times hopelessness. Right. Right, and that's not quite the same thing as being perfect, and it's not quite the same as being invulnerable. And the reason they don't do that is that because they believe, rightfully, right. that if they show up thinking, Lincoln says to a bunch of congressmen, if I show up in the street looking like I think all is lost, what do you think will happen to my generals and my soldiers? Right, right, right. So he, so it's. But now we're in a sort of historical moment where this kind of there's this idea of like public-private congruity, like uh, people are trying to be more authentic or whatever. So it's you know we hear more leaders. I mean not. Yeah, politicians, I know, but, but we hear more leaders kind of airing their dirty absolutely, laundry. Absolutely, absolutely. But I, I, I have nothing against, or I take no, no odds with authentic leadership. But we have to then ask, what is authentic leadership? Mm -hmm. So, the disgorging of our red hot emotions <laughs> in the heat of a frustrated moment when we've got a lot of stuff going on and the hair on the back of our neck is raised, that's not the same thing as authentic leadership, uh -huh. right? That is that is saying I must disgorge my emotions right now and I have you know global media to do that on. And by the way, I don't care whether it's good or bad for my mission and my followers, I need to do it right now. That's not authentic sure, leadership. Sure. Right? I'm talking about people who have enough emotional awareness and discipline to say, I feel this, I need to deal with my own feelings, but I don't have to disgorge them publicly in order to deal with them. Right. And who I really <clears throat> am, publicly and privately, is in concert with my adherence to my mission, but everyone doesn't have to know everything about the, 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 you know, the, the, the vacillations of my emotional temperature all day long. Right. So that's what these people all discover. I'm using modern language that would flummox Lincoln, <laughs> but it's the same. It's the same thing. And Shackleton, and Carson, and Bonhoeffer, and Douglas. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I know. And and I and not to. I, I don't. I don't think I'm harping on this, but I. But I, I. There's something I'm trying to get at here, which is that, which is that. You know, I thought about it when I was reading your section about Shackleton, mm -hmm. right? The ship sinks, he's trying to get the men, you know, keep them active. He's right. he's got and and he he like several other leaders in the book including Dietrich Bonhoeffer, like seems to have genuine love, genuine concern, a lot of love you know, for his men. Knows yep. knows you know his people, yep. you know, and, and at the same time there is this, there's always the calculation going Absolutely. on. And I wonder whether yeah. like for us moderns, right? Like who, not only is there a dearth of real leaders, but we also just don't trust leadership mm -hmm. that much. Well, we don't my, trust my generation. Yeah, and so they're public leaders. We've all known teachers or, right? Yeah, 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 right. Other we, people that have been leaders in our lives, but not necessarily on big grand stages. Right, leaders qua leaders right. or whatever. Right. But, and, and I feel like that is because we are of two minds about like we you know you you, you want to be made better than you are and mm -hmm. whatever but but you don't like the idea that somebody 
is sitting there thinking of you as a follower okay. and making decisions about how to manipulate so you let me, for your own let benefit. Me see if I can, <laughs> let me see if I this can. This is a big question. It's a great yeah. question. Yeah, let, yeah. Me get, let me answer it first right. with an, an analogy. So you're a parent and you're driving alone in a car. Well, you're, you're, you're the only adult in the car and you have two young children. Make them, what, six and eight in the back seat. You're on a highway trying to get home. It's mm. raining cats and dogs. It's a long way between exits and you can't really see very well. Right? right, the rain is pelting. The trucks are driving like you know bats out of hell in the in the middle lane, and you're just trying to find the right lane of the highway so you don't run off the road. Right, right? and it's getting slicker and slicker and scary, and you're scared and you're gripping the wheel, and your kids, you know, pick up on a little bit of that, and they go, Daddy, Daddy, everything okay? Are we okay? And you and, and you could turn around and say, Oh my God, no, I can't, I can't wait till we get to the next exit. Please help me. But you don't do that. Right, you say, Everything's fine, Adrian. Play with your sister. Right? And you calculate. But they're kids. But, and you're the parent. But leadership has an <laughs> enormous amount of similarities and, yeah, and yeah. analogies to parenting, thoughtfully, to stewardship. It is stewardship. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not suggesting your followers are beneath you or have less than you or something. I'm suggesting that when people, as Wallace says in this essay, when people happily give you the trust right, right. that someone gives a person they regard as a real leader, they owe you the responsibility of looking out for themselves and their bearing, right, and making those calculations because you've invested them with something. Your trust, right. your work, your time, your money, your votes, the future for your kids, your schools. And, and so with that responsibility, yes, goes some calculation. Does that upset, does that disrupt our romantic lessons of leadership? Well, if, if so, then we have never been a parent. <laughs> we have never tried to lead a football team in school. Right. We've never done a group study project. Because if you're head of a group study project, we all know that involves calculation. Let's not be naive. Let's, let's appreciate the rich, the fullness of what it requires to lead effectively from each of us. And let's go forward from, from that. And the book intimates those, that kind of fullness. Um, my son came to, who's, who's almost 10, he came to me yesterday. And this is actually a story about him as a leader. Uh -huh. He at school has started this little boys club. It's, it's a kids club uh -huh. and all the kids are welcome. He initially called it boys club because he was in kindergarten. Now he's dealing with uh -huh. uh, trying to make sure everyone feels gender included uh -huh. and so on. But, um, but one, of the, one of the people <laughs> who is part of this club and they play various games and he's really proud of his leadership and the way my son and how he's organized this club and it's, it's kind of, Impressive. Like mm -hmm. I'm not that kind of guy. I'm more of a collaborative type. But he, you know, and um, his friend came to him yesterday and was like, "The only reason you're doing this is because you want attention." And the kids, the kids have a great time. They love it. I think it's been going on for four years. It's doing really well and everything, right? But I, I thought that that a little bit got at the heart of that sort of dual way that a lot of people, myself included, are reluctant to give over authority to leaders. We, we question what their motives might be for putting themselves in that position. I, you know, and that's a fair, I think it's a fair questioning given recent history, given the leadership void, certainly in lots of public places, yeah. given the ka-ching, ka-ching, transactional, self-interested nature of so many people in power today. So I think it's, that's entirely under, understandable. But it, but, but it also, in a sense, begs the question, which is a leader owes the people who follow him or her a reason to follow him or her. Right, so in right, a sense, right, right. you know, 
You're, whether that whether the child that asked your son that was a doubting Thomas, I call the people that are always naysayers, and Shackleton has a couple of them on his mission, right. naysayers or doubting Thomases because they spread a kind of negative energy throughout any kind of mission. Whether he's a doubting Thomas or he's speaking for, in some sense, for some unspoken sentiment among others, your son, as the leader, actually owes him that answer, right? He owes him a reason of, why am I doing this? Mm. And one of the things I've really been thinking about lately is, how did we Americans get in such a mess across the political spectrum with leaders that don't seem interested at all in public service, at least at the national level? And one of the answers I came to is, I think we're not being as, unlike your, 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 the, the, <laughs> the student at your son's school, we're not being discerning enough. We're not asking our leaders uh, the right discriminating questions, which is, what are you doing here? Why do you want to do this? And by the way, what was the last really bad set of bad circumstances you faced, and how did you deal with it? So, so we're entrusted. Yeah, yeah. We're entrusted. We're in we're asking the wrong questions, or we're not asking enough questions of our leaders. So, you know, again, bully here, here on the question <laughs> the, the student asked your son. But I think also we're being seduced as voters, as followers, by a whole series of things that I call leadership bling. We're being seduced by celebrity. Right. We're being seduced by riches. Right. Who amassed a bunch of money? We're being seduced by who's walking on the, these are politicians, who's walking on the red carpet and how often are they walking on the red carpet? We're being seduced by charisma, which is can be important, but as this book shows so convincingly, I think, isn't necessary at all to succeed mm. as, a, as an effective or real leader. So we have to get more discerning, more discriminating, more demanding about why a leader's doing what they're doing and what they're really made of. Because we're talking about character, not celebrity. Right. And that's what matters. Yeah, but and, and I think our culture, uh, at least, and maybe most many others, um, is of two minds about whether their, whether leaders, political leadership is really meant to be mission-driven or whether it must also be, absolutely be, Machiavellian and, you know, be, there's, whether there's a whole behind-the-scenes life that we simply don't understand and that once you get to that level, there's a game that you have to play and that that may be incongruous with real vision in, in the way that we would like to think well, of I think it, that, you know. I mean, I mean, of course, of course that, 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 that those are, you know, ways, lenses through which we, we view leadership. but. But the historical truth is is more complicated or more more integrated than that. That is, history teaches us that political leaders have the capacity and have have accomplished great goodness right, right. in the world. All kinds of leaders. I'm not just talking about you know Abraham Lincoln or Frederick Douglass. I'm mm. talking about you know Franklin Roosevelt or Nelson Mandela or Martin Luther King, who wasn't in government but became a very political leader, right? right. Or John Lewis, who was a congressman from Atlanta, and as far as I can tell, is one of the most decent and honorable representatives in the history of the United States Congress who just keeps on keeping on. Now, it's not that these people are pure and, you know, culled from the rib of Mohammed, right? Or the Buddha or Jesus, right? They're not pure. None of us are pure. And do they, you know, it, would they pass the smell test of never having engaged in a Machiavellian practice in service <laughs> to something noble and decent? The answer is an unequivocal no. Well, even but for Frederick Douglass, he, as you write in your book. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I think we, we don't want to be naive and we don't want to be too rigid here. We want to think, who is this person on balance? Yeah, right? yeah. We'll never, like, for, as for any of us, we will never know, just like we never know, even about our most intimate friends, exactly 
what skeletons are in their closet, mm -hmm. exactly who they have to answer, right, when they come to the, their own <laughs> moment of judgment with themselves. But, but on balance, can we ask for, demand, and expect to find people of decency with a worthy mission that they can call people to, and then smell, as jo David Foster Wallace says, a real leader when we demand it and look for it and ask the right questions? Absolutely. And if we give up on that, we're giving up on our democratic experiment. And then we're giving up on a huge piece of, of, of possibility for the global village, because America may be in free fall right now in many, many frightening respects, but the world still depends on America as a, a bedrock in many, many ways. Right. And to let our nation keep, continue to slide down the cliff and give up on politics is to bequeath a terrible legacy to our children, and that's putting it very mildly. And the other thing that I think about quite a lot, and you know, you're, you're in Harvard Business School, so I'm sure you think about this a lot as well, is the fact that in the context of business as it is practiced, like there are companies that have visionary leaders who are no doubt trying to do wonderful things in the world, mm -hmm. right? But the bottom line for a lot of companies yeah. is the bottom line. I it, mean, no. you know, still. It like, is, and, and, it's, and that <laughs> like, has to change now. Yeah. Has, and I think it will change, let me tell you what. Right? It, whether it'll change rapidly enough to arrest some of the, 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 the to, to stop the ticking or slow the ticking time bomb of a number of global challenges, I think is a more open question. But let me tell you why the, the bottom line is no longer, let's put it this way, the bottom line is no longer just about buy low and sell high or maximize EPS quarter to quarter. Mm. And, and you, you, know, you mentioned visionary leaders, let's take two men who understand, to put it a slightly different way, that that a lot of really important business problems are not purely economic problems, hmm. or business possibilities are not purely economic problems. So two men who have said that and understand that and are betting their companies on it are Paul Pullman at Unilever, a man that's a leader that's not very well known in the United States, who has bet Unilever, one of the biggest companies in the world, on environmental stability. He has bet the entire company on environmental sustainability, mostly in Africa, but in other parts of the developing world. And he's betting products, he's betting investments, he's betting all the innovation efforts, he's betting the stock price day to day on a long-term commitment to environmental sustainability, believing that is the only way his company can thrive in those parts of the world and as a global citizen. So for him, those problems are everything from water supplies in sub-Saharan mm. Africa to, you know, what's the, what's the effluent effect? What's the, what's the wasted water look like after you use a certain kind of Unilever detergent okay. in streams and rivers? So he is betting on this big time. And it's not something, and he says this to his shareholders in his quarterly calls, you want to count pennies on a quarterly basis, then you're not playing the long game. I'm playing the long game, respectfully, you know, you need to think about that and consider that as you make your you know, equity buying decisions or equity analysis decisions. Another person who's doing exactly the same thing, and by the way, these are not men who don't care about their companies, and they're not men, they're men who see that, that all kinds of social issues and businesses' role in those issues are good business, is Howard Schultz at Starbucks, right? Uh -huh. Who's taking that company into race. He's taking it into veterans' employment. He's taking it into who, who can hire you know, 10,000 refugees in five years. He's taking it into, you know, politics and campaign contributions. He has expanded that company's footprint in all kinds of ways, not because he thinks he needs to be at odds with stockholders and the bottom line, but because he believes the bottom line is centrally affected by how the company does business, and he believes that consumers and employees and other stakeholders are increasingly making decisions about that how when they purchase the company. 
purchase the company's products or when they decide to work for Starbucks or right. whether they let a Starbucks into a certain place in town. And so his bet is people aren't just voting on functions and benefits and brands. Yeah, yeah. The brand is all tied up with the story of the business. The story of the business is about our social footprint as well as how well we make coffee and how fast we serve sure. it. So that's, that's, that's one really interesting piece. The second part of the answer is that we've got, we saw a couple of months ago, Ken Frazier, the CEO of Merck, step off President Trump's manufacturing council because of how Trump responded to white supremacists in the aftermath of the tragedy at Charlottesville. Right. Ken Frazier did it, and then a bunch of other people done it. Elon Musk had done it earlier. Some other folks had done it in a different moment earlier in Trump's presidency. That could not have been an easy thing. And you right. can't tell me those men and women, those CEOs didn't think, is this gonna impact my bottom line? Right. right? Or is Trump gonna get angry, Mr. Trump gonna be angry with me and tweet me terribly, and that gonna affect my bottom line? So this was not an easy decision, I'm sure, for any of these people. And yet, I think, and I think it's entirely, not, not just arguable, I think it's very likely that all of their businesses and all of their brands benefited from that decision benefited by the way, by the engagement and commitment it incited in their employees, right. benefited from, from lots of consumers, not necessarily Mr. Trump supporters, but lots of consumers and, and other stakeholders who said, yeah, that, that didn't work. I'm not sure I can support a company that, that's, that, that continues to traffic in, in this presidency in, a, in any kind of official capacity, et cetera. So but we, I think also <clears throat> that in every one of those cases, no doubt, that was a, a calculated risk. It was a bet that they yes. took. They no may question. have taken it for principled reasons, yeah, no or they may not, or, you, you know. And the question is, and I'm not saying that there, you know, we should ha go to socialism or that there shouldn't be any businesses, mm -hmm. but the question is whether the decisions that these companies make, right, to on to, in terms of what on balance is going to be best right. in terms of the vision and sustainability right. of their company, which might well be good for this place in Africa or that mm -hmm. place or the other, whether all that energy on balance ends up being best for everybody. I mean, because the energy right. is motivated by the desire to have a successful company. Absolutely. Like, so, you know what I'm saying? Like, whether yeah, all I, that activity I think so, on although, balance... Although I have, I have known CEOs you know. that have made decisions that they weren't sure were in the best interests of the company because they couldn't be right with themselves if they didn't take that hard choice. Mm -hmm. So a leader's always faced with being right with him or herself. Right, right, right. With getting bigger in terms of their own sense of their true self and their stronger self, or getting smaller. Everyone, you know, that's a decision that, that leaders make over and over again, and it adds up to, right, who they really are over time, right? Like as it does for all of us. So I, right, right, so, right. So, so I guess I would say that there are there are many I think many business leaders who have made hard decisions as for themselves, even though they weren't sure about the effect or thought it might be negative for their company. But the second thing, and this is the, gets to the top of the question, my 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 summer, the, the top of my answer, which is we better hope that, <laughs> that a lot more large corporations come to realize that the global challenges are facing us from global warming, right, to immigration, to the education of a workforce, to let's talk about one of the really, really, really pressing problems, income and wealth inequality uh -huh. around the world have, are hugely impacted 
by business by business decision making, and they and that they also realize that large corporations have the knowledge, have the resources, have the people on the ground that can begin to address these and, and start thinking well, in a larger way about the sustainability of the glo of global capitalism and how that needs to be revised and and changed and reformed in order to keep the entire global village healthy and functioning. Because we are interconnected, and as Tom Friedman says in the New York Times, we are getting flatter, more tightly connected, and a lot hotter. And we don't have any time to waste on this. I think that is, is, is the elephant in the room. That is the question, because we, are, because we are dependent on business leaders much more so in, in many ways yes. than we are on political leaders at this point to lead the direction of our countries, of our culture, and so on. So the question is whether, in fact, the invisible hand of the market is going to lead us in the direction of what is good for people. Well, it's not going to lead like, us. Like, you know, <laughs> the flywheel of capitalism is not without guidance, demands, activism, and, and and a whole new new crop of leaders going to take us there unmolested because it's not right, how it works. Right, right, right. But but are there people? I know this from the Harvard Business School and the Harvard Kennedy School. Are there young leaders emerging to take their their place in corporations that have this view? Yes. Yeah. Are there new groups of activism and, and, and communities of people who want to shift and change and revise the global flywheel? Absolutely. Are there thousands and thousands of, hundreds of thousands of employees that want to work for a company they can be proud of? You bet. Gotcha. So I think we can't underestimate these new are businesses living in glass houses in a way they weren't 20 years ago because of social media right. and global connectivity? You bet they are. Mm -hmm. So these are new forces, and they can be forces of good, and they, but they they be that those forces, as benevolent forces, begin and end with people that don't give up and say, "I'm going to make a difference," or "I'm going to business school," or "I'm going to start a company because I want to use my company in that way towards that end with that kind of how as we strive to be a successful organization." This is the moment, mm. and it we have no time to waste for all kinds of leaders to come out of the mist now and take their place at the table. I think that's a good place for us to go to the second part of the show, and uh, we've used much of our time, actually, but uh, we're going to have time for one surprise clip. Good. We're going to see Liv Bury, who is a, like, she's an international poker champion. <laughs> I know she's also a mathematician. She's, this video is called Four Professional po Poker Lessons to Help You Think Clearly and Live Wisely. The most damaging bias that can come up in poker, and I also think very often in life, is uh, what's known as confirmation bias. Uh, so that's basically when you look for, you have like a, a pre-existing want to believe something, a desire that, for something to be true, and you will overvalue evidence that confirms that belief and disvalue evidence that, that disproves it. And in poker, that can be absolutely devastating if, say, you're in a big hand and a ton of your chips are in the middle and your opponent's made a big bet and you really, you, you know, your hand's not that strong and you really, really want to believe that they're bluffing so that you can win this hand. And you'll then look for all the signs, you know, oh, well, I saw that their hand looked shaky in that way and they seem a little uncertain. Look, look for all the evidence that could suggest that they are bluffing and then not really ask yourself that, that, you know, those vital questions like, okay, well, what evidence is there that they actually have a strong hand? The, the status quo bias is 
basically when we say to ourselves, whenever we catch ourselves saying, well, it's always been done this way, or it's worked for me like this in the past, and this is my way of doing things. That's the status quo bias rearing its, its rather ugly head. We have a tendency to not want to change our methodology. And, and in poker, I, I remember I used to catch myself falling into that. I had like a style of play that had worked for me a, a number of times, and I would over rely on that and, and not update my, my playing style based upon the table that I was at because perhaps I didn't enjoy it as much or um, I found it more scary, for example. And, and the same thing can apply to us in, in life. The important thing there is to just be aware of the bias and look for situations where you could be using it to justify staying in a situation that you're a little bit scared to change. Let's start with the, with, the, with the status quo fallacy. So I could not agree, is it leave? I could not agree with leave more than, than with both these lessons than, I, than I, I do because of what I've learned from my own work writing this book. She's, I think she's dead on. That is, she's urging us not to get too stuck in the idea that, well, we've always done it this way. It worked. Right. You know, whether it works or not, or I'm afraid to do it another way, or this is the history of doing it this way. So each of these leaders, um, in the midst of turbulence, discovers that old ways don't work. Frederick Douglass starts off believing he can end slavery by moral suasion. Yeah. They, that's how Lloyd Garrison, uh, William Lloyd Garrison and Wendell Phillips and the grand men of, uh, northern abolition, of, of the Northern abolitionists believed and had done it for, you know, 10 or 15 years when he joined the movement. He's going to preach and people are going to feel gonna bad. People are going to see it, right. And, and, yeah, yeah. and then they're going to, again, through rhetoric and, you know, mass communication in, in lots and lots of meeting halls, they're going to convince Northerners and then Southerners to give, to want to, to one end slavery or to give up their slaves. And he realizes that, that I don't care how long you've been saying this, it's not, it's not working. <laughs> and he comes to see by the mid-1850s that slavery is so entrenched economically, socially, politically, that it's going to take great disruption, a hell of a lot more than moral suasion, to, to disrupt it, to end it, to root it out. And so he, he's a perfect example, but Shackleton's another example. You know, Well, we should keep on trying to walk across the pole and somehow we'll just wait for the ice to melt and we'll be, and, and we'll be all right. No, no, no. He's like, that goal's over. It doesn't matter that that's what I tried to do. It doesn't matter that we're all set up to do that and nothing else. The only goal that matters is the new goal that crisis has, has confronted us with, which is we got to get them, we got to all get home safely to civilization. So I, I actually want to, I want to interrupt here because yeah. the, 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 you know, Frederick Douglass situation reminded me while I was reading about it, reminded me of, so, so Douglass ends up getting involved in the John Brown, is, is a, I, correct me if I'm wrong, is that the rebellion, the slave? So, he he ends up he ends up communicating with and sort of right. in a in a back background back kind of way supporting John Brown's yeah, he, slave rebellion. Supporting well John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry, which I've, was I've, a federal I've, arsenal. It's no problem, right? A federal arsenal in Virginia, right before the Civil War broke out. He and some of his followers, some seventy strong, try and take this arsenal with the idea of arming slaves and then causing a mass uprising of slaves. Right. You know, and and, been, and, and, and so, and, uh, sorry, go ahead. No, I'm and so, so yeah. Douglas knew Brown, not real closely, but he knew Brown, he knew what Black Brown was intending, but not too long before Brown actually is ready to implement this plan, which had been brewing and making him, Brown had been involved in other armed insurrections in the Kansas-Nebraska
Alaska territories over the, the, the morality and legality of slavery there. So this was not the first time Brown was ready to take up arms to try and eradicate slavery. But, but Frederick Douglass comes to see that he can't win this. And so right. a few weeks before Brown's ready to go to Harper's Ferry, he tells him, give it up, my friend. It won't work. A pragmatist, right? right? You know, I don't know what else was motivating Douglas. I'm not sure of it, but I know he was certain that Brown couldn't succeed. And but he, up to a certain point, he was kind of like, yeah, oh, absolutely. You know, in the conversation. And so, I, and and and, and, and he, I mean, the only reason I bring it up is because I think this is this is very interesting. This question of the moment at which we decide this is stepping slightly away from leadership to our own time but this question where we sort of morally decide that violence even in oh form yeah and, of the, and war you see it, and might you, be the right answer and you answer see it in Bonhoeffer to too right this peace loving right believer in the sermon on the mount right yeah. and Christ's peaceful teachings that becomes a member of a small group of men trying to kill Hitler yeah so both brown and douglas yeah, yeah. i think I, grapple real seriously real messily with the moral issues involved. Is it, is it morally defensible to take up arms to end slavery? Is it morally defensible to literally become part of a small group of men that are gonna try and shoot, or in both cases, that, in several cases that Bonhoeffer was directly involved in, blow up, right, the Fuhrer, Adolf Hitler, blow him up with a bomb. Yeah, that was yeah. how they were gonna kill him in different instances, or it's more than just the famous plot that Tom Cruise made, <laughs> well-known in Valkyrie, right? The Stoff, what's called the Stauffenberg plot in right. 1944. Um, and both of these men grapple with it intensely and, and in messily. And so, and, and I think in each case, they come to see that there's no easy moral way out. You can't escape the sin of taking a life in the interest of what you regard as a, as, as a really important it's moral not gonna, It's not gonna happen. It otherwise. doesn't erase like, the slavery sin. Slavery is not gonna go but, away. But, but in both their cases, what, what motivates Bonhoeffer, and ultimately he, doesn't, he, he, says, he says to his fellow co-conspirators, look, we can't get completely right with this. There isn't an easy moral door that we can walk through here. But if we don't end Hitler's regime, if we don't kill him, he's gonna slaughter more Jews. They knew in, from inside the government early on by 1941 what the final solution was going to be. How dramatic, how terrible, how widespread. So he's like, I gotta do it, but we also have to take uh, responsibility. We also have to take responsibility that yeah. we are taking a life and, and, yeah, and, yeah. and, and, and the higher, and he was a you know, Christian, and, 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 the, and the tenets of Christ demand that we take that responsibility. I would say Douglas was a less overtly religious person mm. and he left less record of this. And he was, he, he was not called on in the way Bonhoeffer was to somehow articulate the, mor the messiness of the moral issues as Bonhoeffer was for his fellow co-conspirator, for his co-conspirators. But, but there's no question that Douglas dealt with this. And he said, well, I thought moral suasion would work. Then I thought political agitation mm. without armed rebellion would work. Mm. And now, after, in his case, almost 18 years of working it, I don't see another recourse. Right, there's a wonderful, he gives a wonderful speech where he says, those that want change, real change without, you know, agitation, want, you know, crops without the, the thunderstorms that, ra that accompany rain. They want, you know, they want, uh, they want progress without the, the, the tumult that progress often involves. They want, you know, right. the, the beauty of the, the, the ocean without the roar of its majesty and stormy waters. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, in the interest of progress, this is what we must do. And I don't think it was easy, and I don't yeah. think it was neat and clean, and I think he owned that responsibility. Yeah. And he, th he made it in the interest of what he saw as something that involved greater suffering, greater moral mm. transgression, mm. which was 
Americans owning other Americans as property. It's easy for us to look back. I mean, I realize as I'm thinking about these things, it's easy for us to look back at, say, for example, the kind of Martin Luther King, early Malcolm X duality and, say, and say, well, early Malcolm X was advocating violence by any means necessary, whatever. And, you know, Martin Luther King, following the wonderful example of Gandhi, found this like peaceful way to go about things. And at the end of his life, look, Malcolm X went to Mecca and he came back and was peaceful too, you know, um, and that's good. But I mean, what, what these moments from history show us are that like, even though there is inevitably a cost if you do decide to spill blood, I mean, the and Civil blood, War was absolutely terrible. Absolutely, and King, you know? King's people, the civil rights workers, the Southern Christ, leadership, Christian Leadership Coalition involved lots of violence to people. They may, they may have, you know, found the emotional discipline and forbearance to keep the civil rights, the freedom, you know, the freedom riders, right, from from raising a hand. But, you know, there was a lot of violence. People were, many people were killed. You know, children were injured. Cops, like, you know, beat the crap out of people. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. you don't get to do this neatly and cleanly. Yeah. And I can't think that King didn't grapple with that as well, right? Yeah, yeah. I, 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 like Mandela no in doubt. South Africa, right? So, so this is messy, hard work, but it, the book calls on all of us implicitly, not explicitly, to take a hard look at the moral messiness, right? And then to take the responsibility of it. Uh, I don't think any of the people I've just mentioned did this easily, right? They didn't, mm -hmm. they did, it was hard. It was hard work inside and out. And the, and the book tells their stories beautifully. Thank you so much for being with me today, Nancy. Can oh, it's a privilege and a pleasure. And um, for me too. And. Nancy's book is Forged in Crisis, The Power of Courageous Leadership in Turbulent Times. And that wraps up another episode of Think Again. I have been having an amazing time uh, lately. I've really enjoyed the conversations that are going on on our Facebook group that is Friends of Think Again. Um, it's a hugely diverse, really interesting group of people from all over the world. I mean, I think we have 20 countries at least represented on there. People talking about religion, about science, about, you know, ideas that come up on the show, but we're talking about them in ways that, that would never get discussed on the show just because of the number of interesting and different voices that we have on there so if you listen to the show and if you want to come talk to us talk with us join us on facebook our group is called friends of think again and uh you just request to join and i'll let you in and um the conversation is super lively interesting intellectually stimulating and i hope that you can come be a part of it we'll be back next week with another great conversation and hope to have you there <laughs>